Hello folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today I'm sharing a conversation that I had with Bina Sharma, who is a dear friend and with whom I've worked for over 13 years. And Bina is, first of all, a terrific integral thinker and practitioner, uh, and also quite an accomplished coach and organizational development consultant. And she has formed with Suzanne Cook-Reuter, another renowned adult development expert in this community, a company called the Center for Leadership Maturity, where they work with individuals and organizations using real metrics uh, to assist in vertical development. In this podcast, Bina and I discuss what she and her team are learning about how people grow and how we can participate in our own growth, and particularly at the higher stages of development, at the green plus stages. We'll, we'll look at the whole thing, but focus there. And um, I always like that uh, because it really just helps me to see where I'm at, see what might be next, see where the challenges are, and to you know explore the new territory that I'm living into. And you are too, if you're an integral practitioner. So here's some good help. Uh, my conversation with Bina Sharma, and I start by asking her to just give us a little insight into what she's doing. So here's Bina. Yes, it's very exciting to me, and it's endlessly fascinating. What our vision is, is to facilitate the understanding of human evolution and how it manifests in vertical development in our daily lives, in our personal and professional lives. So we use the leadership maturity framework and the core concept is maturity of human beings. And we see our work as helping people orient themselves to this beautiful, sacred path of the human being that mm. we know through our study and through research, and uh, to support individuals, teams, to begin to look at what collective maturity looks like, what would team maturity look like in an organization, for example, and then how can individual and team maturity contribute to organizational maturity? So while we are very firmly rooted in individual maturity, using the MAP assessment as a very robust anchor and reference point we are very actively working to interpret maturity in um, a system, not just in the individual. Hmm. So concretely what this means is we offer coach development programs. We work primarily through coaches, and we also are beginning to work directly with leaders and organizations. So our primary work is with coaches where we train coaches to use the maturity lens or the vertical development lens to tailor their coaching to the stage of development of their client. So we don't teach basic coaching skills, but we teach an advanced coaching approach. Mm -hmm. um, and it's robust and deep. And I would also say it's evolving and it's a new field because if you look at the source of the this work was the research originally done by Jane Lovinger and then uh, developed further by Suzanne, and Lovinger was very clear that she didn't want to use the MAP or the SCT, the sentence completion test, 
did not want to use it for anything other than research. She forbade it being used uh, for any other purpose. Um, but now for the last, I would say, uh, 25 years and more recently, more actively and in a more widespread way, this measurement is being used actually in service of people's development, in service of them becoming more aware of where they are and where they could be next, and then in service of the helping professions to support their clients. So it's exciting that this is an, um, it's a new field. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Bill Torbert and Suzanne in the early years, you started using it for development. And I would say it's only in the last, yeah, 15 years maybe that uh, we're learning, uh, we're learning more about what this takes, what, mm-hmm. what is involved. I feel like we are creating knowledge in our communities as we learn more and more about ourselves, about the framework, about how it informs us. Right. So, yeah, so I couldn't be happier doing what we are doing. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So you're training people to work with clients who hire them to become better people, more mature people, and your people use the developmental stages as a lens to sort of chart the movement and the you know forward path for these people, right? Yes, that is correct. The only clarification would be often clients, uh, the end client doesn't explicitly request for vertical development or right. they're not asking for coaches to help them get to the next stage. They're just wanting to develop. And I find this is the most interesting thing that, you know, development has been a very active and intentional process in systems and organizations for or five decades ever since management development became a field. Mm-hmm. But there is no orienting map for development. So there are many ways of describing development, different traits, different aspects, but there is no, there hasn't been anything uh, that we can hold up and say, oh, this tells me how I'm developing or where I am or all this learning that I have been engaged with what, you know, in terms of outcomes, what are the developmental markers that tell me that I've gotten somewhere? And so what does that path look like? Mm-hmm. That hasn't that hasn't been available before. And now we're using the map very actively. And, so and I find that, um, sorry, just to complete my thought, I find that that's one of the most orienting things for clients when they realize that they can situate and interpret their own kind of path in terms of the map. And it's often relieving. Mm -hmm. For example, I just met with a client in a very prominent um, high-tech company in Silicon Valley and who has been feeling disoriented is the head of human development in a large company and has obviously been engaging with a lot of development efforts for herself and in the last two years has been feeling disoriented and wondering if she's just not fitting in with the company and if she should leave or she's just feeling that the things that she imagined were going to happen, you know, didn't feel like they were going to happen, etc. So she was going through a lot of turmoil 
And uh, we did the math. And in the debrief, she began to see that she's actually in a transition between stages, between orange and green. And it's one of the markers of that transition is the disorientation where nothing that, you know, you felt before makes sense and you don't fit in and you reject the ways in which the environment is uh, asking you to, you know, continue to be. And she was actually thinking of quitting. And after taking this map and recognizing, she realized that, well, she does have a choice of leaving and just going off somewhere and doing her own thing. But she realized that she would be contributing more if she stayed in to support others to kind of enhance their perspective taking, their capacities. And um, she found new meaning and purpose in her being in the same environment. Hmm. So I think that was a huge gift. No, that's wonderful. And it certainly echoes my experience with discovering the map of development and seeing myself, you know, all over it. And that's sort of one of the things that I know we both see is that human beings are at different levels and different lines and that we have a whole sort of complex constellation of how we're growing through these stages that the map really just helps us to identify and it helps us to place ourselves and to see what's next. And also, I love that you use the word sacred uh, because it feels that way. It feels like, you know, we're being lived, that there is a upward draft that, you know, we can spread our wings and be lifted. And that's pretty darn exciting. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thank you. And I love the opening up of exploring even the center of gravity. So the concept of the center of gravity is really useful. And having measurement instrument as robust as the map is, is great. It's revealing. It tells me where I am. And beyond that, I think the real work begins when I explore the the many dimensions of what that means. And so more and more in our work, I'm beginning to use a tri-stage approach rather than a center of gravity as one stage. Mm-hmm. It's very useful from the measurement point of view, but for the application point of view, I prefer to open it up and to look at what are as- some aspects of myself that are still operating at my earlier self? What are some aspects of myself that are at my current level of meaning-making that I can expand um, and take into new areas? And then what are aspects of myself that I'm actually flying higher at? And so how can I consolidate, you know, that uplift? And how can I become more aware and integrate both the earlier aspects of myself as well as the later aspects of myself that are not quite into my center of gravity. Right. So I find that exciting. I yeah. find I find it interesting to observe that, to read that through the instrument, and then to be able to make the connections through conversation and help you know help become more aware. Right. Yeah, and that is you know Cezanne's particular wisdom holding and the lineage. I think one of the core elements in the DNA of this lineage is to be affirming, respecting, loving, appreciating everybody in their unique journey and to recognize no matter where they are, 
about to recognize the triumph of where they've arrived. Absolutely. Hallelujah. Yeah. 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 So what are you learning? What's Bina learning in this quest that you're on? Well, and there are so many different things at so many different levels. There's things about myself, then there's things about the theory, then there's things about applying this theory, then there's things about taking this out in the world, and then mm-hmm. there's things about organizing and partnering with uh, people. So at all of those levels, I'm you know, learning a lot and I'm excited. I think so I'll just highlight a few things. I'm learning how the earlier stages continue to live inside us in more subtle form. Mm-hmm. And and it's, to me, um, an exciting game of discovery yes. to notice when Amber is still alive in me, mm-hmm. but it has masqueraded so far as an enlightened self-choice. And then I suddenly realized, no, I was fooling myself. I thought that I was choosing to be this way, but it was actually something that was an imperative that I can now see. So to me, that's very fascinating. And yeah. so I find that at a high level, this framework is very useful to help us chart development. And in recursive fractal ways, I just continue to apply it again and again and again within within a particular experience, within a particular stage, within a particular context. And you just, it's like, I keep reaping all of these insights and benefits from my understanding of yes. the stages that it's amazing. Yes. Well, I was just yesterday <laughs> watched myself be terribly read with mm. a, a, yes. a passive, in a passive aggressive way with the guy who was checking me out at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and he was into it too. We were just sort of like hating each other, but you know, <laughs> uh, and it's right there. You know, for me, uh, what's cool is those times where, like yesterday, I sort of did it with a light heart in a way. I mean, it was used, it was sort of fun for both of us, I think, in a certain yeah, way. Yeah. Two guys. Yeah. And on the other hand, it was, I, I could see myself doing it rather than be completely contracted around it in a red way. So that's, mm. you know, that's I, awesome. that, yeah, yeah, it's totally. And I, I do, yeah. I agree with you, Bina, that part of the way forward, is really turning back and, and, and looking and re-embracing all of these energies that are in us and have been disowned and forgotten and uh, persecuted and to find what's true about them. And the more I <laughs> look at them, the more I realize that everything is true about them except their claim that they're the only way to be, <laughs> yeah. which they all claim. <laughs> Other yeah. than that, give me red energy and power. Let it be right there when I need it, without it running me, you know, without it colonizing me. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we talk about developmental movements, and that's another, I think it's a unique part of uh, Suzanne's work. We do believe that integrating is a very, is probably the most important uh, developmental movement that is perhaps more likely to result in vertical development than trying to transform or trying to transition to the next stage. Mm-hmm. So you're familiar with Ken's beautiful metaphor of the ladder, the climber, and the view. 
And, yeah, why don't you um, sh- so, share that with us? It is beautiful. Yeah, sure. So and it's, 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 the, it's, it's the ladder, and the person climbing the ladder, and the view of the person climb, climbing the ladder. Right? right. So the ladder is the structure. The rungs of the ladder represent each stage of development. All of us mature through different stages of development, and the rungs of the ladder represent each of these stages. The climber is in our theory, is the ego. The ego is the aspect of ourselves that is trying to understand, trying to make meaning, trying to make sense of life experience. And as it tries to make sense of life experience, and as life teaches it more or offers it more, it begins to find that earlier ways of meaning-making no longer contain the reality that it's emerging. And so then a new container, a new way of seeing the world kind of arises yeah. in order to hold the reality. Just as it would so, if you were literally climbing a ladder. You just see yes. more as you climb. Yeah. So the climber is the ego, and then the the view is the view from each rung is different. It's categorically different. It's actually unrecognizable in developmental terms. <laughs> so when you get to the next stage, the way you see the world and what you see is is fundamentally different from the previous rung. So the ladder, the climber, the view is a beautiful metaphor that just explains this theory. And we've added a fourth component, which we call the climbing, which is the process of climbing. What is that like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so the climbing is what are all the developmental moves? So the climbing involves at a so at a meta level, if you will, the climbing involves you can be standing in one rung. And continuing to consolidate and expand your view, you can see farther and farther. You can see more and more while you're at the same rung. That's consolidating. Transitioning is when you're just beginning to move. You're between rungs. You're not squarely in the previous, and you're not yet firm-footed in the next rung. So you're in the middle. So that's transitioning. Transformation is you suddenly find yourself at the next rung. Um, it feels radical, even yeah. though it may have taken you some time um, over time. You know, there might have been shifts and changes that suddenly then bring you to a new level. Yeah. And then um, there are other movements. Fallback is where you are uh, stable at your center of gravity, but then you, t- you can fall back. You can get triggered. There's a certain context, a certain situation, a certain pattern, a certain person, you know, just makes you fall back. Um, it doesn't mean that you've regressed because if you have the current meaning-making capacity, then you'll be aware that you're falling back. Right. Uh, however, then you do need to integrate. So that integration can happen when you're falling back. And integration also needs to happen when you're in an, what we call uplift. So we all know the experience of being inspired. You know, you're in you're in the presence of somebody who's enlightened, you go to a workshop or you finished a big project and you suddenly relax mm-hmm. and, you know, capacity surge up within you and you realize that you are far more than you thought you were. Yeah. That, now that could be short-lived. And so how do we integrate and then make that an aspect of our fundamental way of being? So that, so integration is, a movement that is used both with fallback as well as uplift. Mm-hmm. And then there is there is a whole other movement, which we call the movement of no movement. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can be completely. Thank you for that. Yeah, and that and how and how important that is to be owned and lived and loved, also. So the movement of no movement can also take different forms. One is you're completely at home. You're at rest, and it could be it's taken you a lot to get here, and it's fine to just stay there and be yeah. without having the urge to change yourself or do something about it. So you can be at home. You can be stuck. You can be at a place and want to move but find that you don't know what's keeping your foot nailed to the floor. So that can be the negative aspect of no movement. Yeah. You can it can it can also be like an in inertia. It could be just a plateau where it's not that you're at home and feeling full and stable and it's not that you're feeling negatively stuck, but you could feel uh, that you're at a plateau and there's not much developmental energy. That's also a valuable, it's like lying fallow for a while. Yeah, so what we're learning is how to notice all these movements in our clients as they take the map and as they talk about their journeys and their path. We are learning to recognize all of these movements and then to support them through our coaching and understanding of um, how do you integrate. And um, there's one more big piece that I'd like to add, but I can wait until you, um, you want well, to say something. Go ahead, go ahead and add it, Bina. What's the... I mean, I, I, I'm finding this all very fascinating. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so the other big thing is to see each stage of development as a constellation of developmental tasks that we all need to master in order to get to the next stage and it's never a clean movement, you know. So let's say each stage of development has 10 or 12 aspects that we need to master, that we need to reframe for ourselves, that we need to challenge, that we need to push against so that a larger world can make itself available or can reveal itself to us. So I might, out of those 10 or 12 aspects, I might have mastered six or eight of them. And so I have enough critical mass, developmental critical mass to begin to move to the next stage. And so then in the next stage, I might already access three or four of those uh, of that stage and I can begin to operate in some context from that stage perspective. And at the same time, there might be aspects of the previous stage that um, I'm, I'm still caught up in. So this granular profiling um, is very exciting to me, and we are codifying that. So hmm. when you said, what are you learning, and what's exciting me is learning those, what are those uh, footholds? in each Mm -hmm. uh, stage, and um, we are creating a manual for coaches so that we can list for each stage, here are the footholds, these are the most, these are the fundamental identity-related developmental tasks, and then here are some suggestions if if you have a client that self-discloses or recognizes that they seem to still operate in this particular way, then here are some ways you can dislodge that. And so can you imagine if I'm sitting in front of you, Jeff, and you have this granular kind of roadmap 
And in consultation, you and I can go through this and you can identify two or three things or two or three of these aspects at each stage that would be your edges. And it doesn't matter if your developmental uh, center of gravity is peeled. It doesn't matter. If you, if you are able to identify your edges at red, amber, orange, green, and begin to work with those and become more aware, I think, I, I just feel it's like it opens up. Well, I, I, I want it. I must have it. Give it to me. <laughs> yeah, we are working on it and um, it will be available. No, it's, it's, it would be so helpful. And still, you have enough understanding of it that you could walk us through some of the footholds at each of the rungs. I can just give you a few examples. Cool. If you look at the group-centric stage or amber, one of the core drivers is you want uh, you want to make sure that the other person is okay. You want to get approval. You want to get included. Or you have some should in connection with a specific relationship in your life. So even if I'm working with somebody who's at Peel, I will go through that question and I can assume that they're not at the conformist stage. They're not at Amber. I can assume that they are self-authoring and all of the good stuff. And yet it's very valuable to ask the question, is there an experience in your life currently or is there a relationship in your life currently where you feel that you are not able to say something or do something that you think would hurt the other person or that you want them to see you in a particular way. So mm-hmm. I think our language, of, you know, gets more and more refined as we work with later stages of development. So uh, so that's one example. Right. If you take orange or uh, self-determining stage, one of the core footholds is the, the need and the uh, tendency to predict predict what's going to happen, to know what's going to happen, to plan for it, to control for it, to manage it. And so, again, even if I'm speaking to somebody who's green or who's late post-conventional and who's, or even a spiritual aspirant or even a spiritual teacher, Mm -hmm. I would raise the question with them, even in your spiritual practice, what is it that you think you know is going to happen and that you can make happen? From the the orange... From the orange. Yes, exactly. Yes. yes. So those are oh, a couple absolutely. of examples. Yes. For the skill-centric stage, uh, which which that color doesn't exist because it's between amber and orange. Mm-hmm. There's a whole population that is actually one of the most significant populations we are working with in, I would say, in the mainstream because research shows that it is a stage all by itself. And I find that's one of the big gaps in the spiral dynamics theory because it doesn't account for a whole worldview, a whole rung that is so that is so well defined mm-hmm. and that's also almost the most textbook case in some ways in the professional world is that rung. Mm-hmm. It's the self-centric stage where we are identified not by who we belong to but by what we do. Right. Our identity still doesn't come from who we are, but from what we do. So at that stage, one of the footholds is that I, I, I need to be, I need to be on top of this, or I need to be the best at this, or I need to know everything about this that I'm doing. Right. And so again, you know, this is a, this is a, such a strong part of our identity. 
that even individuals who have passed the stage usually will have this very live in both functional and dysfunctional ways. Yes. I mean, take me, for example. So I've been doing this for 12 years and, you know, I'm working in organizations for 30 years. For me, it's very live and it's something that I have to really watch for. When does that kick in when I'm standing in front of a group, when I'm coaching? When does that kick in that I, I really need to know and be able to provide some direction to my clients? Yes. Uh, when can I acknowledge that it's okay for me to not know this or let it go for now and see what my client is offering me in this moment? I mean, it can take a thousand forms. Mm-hmm. So, but what you're doing is, is turning Bina into a, a somebody that you're looking at. I mean, you're actually able to see yourself doing this. Right. And it just makes for a far more juicy and I think exciting. I, you use the word exciting. And I agree. It's just exciting to be able to see this. Yeah. And for me, you know, Jeff, it's clarity because I find that there is a lot written about stages. I mean, Suzanne has written a lot and there are so many other developmental theorists. There are so many abstractions and each stage is a universe. And, you know, we read about it and we think about it and we think we have an idea, but I often find that it's like one mass of information about a stage and then there's also a lot of reductionism that happens where mm-hmm. I think, oh, if somebody is just being rational oh, they're, and if they're being rational and they like to be successful, oh, that's orange. So we reduce a person just because we see a couple of things that we that trigger us into thinking that those are symptomatic of a particular stage and then we say, oh, that person's at that stage. So because of all that messy way that I've heard it being used and that I've unlearned for myself, mm-hmm. I think this provides some clarity. It gives me like, it's almost like the skeletal system for each stage. Yeah. It gives me the big bone. It gives me the things that I can, that I can point to that we know from research and that we know from listening to thousands of stories that this is a pattern. And that when we work with that pattern, that there are, it's juicy, you know, and it's, uh, it's really revealing and it's, um, very useful. Let me ask you this, Bina. So a lot of my listeners are going to be in some post green, at least on a good day, where they're doing integrating and transforming. And, and then in turquoise, you call it questioning constructs and ego. You call it construct aware. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. That that the construct aware particularly. I hear this a lot from developmentalists, and I'm not sure I understand what that means. So, if I can put it simply, uh, it'll help to chase to chase a core idea from a couple of earlier stages. So, if you look at green, the gre- green believes that there's no truth. Uh, it's all relative. There's no absolute truth, right? All, yes. All all beliefs, all perspectives are equal. Uh, when you get to teal, uh, the, then the, the realization for the first time is, yes, everything is relative and there are some absolutes and there are some principles. I have some convictions. There are some yeses and noes. And because I'm now past green, I do have the capacity to contextualize. I have the capacity to see interdependence. I have the capacity to see systemic patterns. And I can hold 
that as well as I can take a stand. I can say either or. I can say no to something. I can say yes to something. So it's that capacity at the at the heel stage, which is a very powerful, powerful stage. And because there's so much capacity at that stage, the deduction is that I can handle everything and I know I can map everything or I can understand everything. So the big realization at the construct of air stage is that, yes, there are absolutes and those absolutes are constructs. Hmm. That they, were, they are something that they are an invention. And I can reframe it. I can reinvent it. I can deconstruct it. I can co-construct it. I can reconstruct it. Um, so, so, you know, you're just, you're working at that level of interplay between my, my thoughts, my awareness, my awareness about my awareness, how am I framing it, and how is this reality, um, a product of my own view of it? Whereas uh-huh. at the previous stage, at the PU stage, you're identified with the reality as you see it. Whereas at the construct aware stage, even that begins to get questioned. And it's pretty disorienting. Um, and, and also terribly, um, liberating and terribly exciting and terribly de-energizing. Because you can go on and on and on about it. Right. And you, you, you can never see, you know, there's never, never an end. So there's a complex matrix of self-identifications at the construct aware stage, while at the same time there's a questioning of their adequacy. Okay, so let me just think about that for myself. So when you say that at construct aware, you begin to see that the absolutes are also constructed, I, I think of something like love. Is that, that feels like an absolute. Or um, even in a, in a sense, development, evolution, that there's a, there's, that's, that's there whether we believe it or not. Um, yeah, but you're not holding it as absolute. At the, um, it is, yeah, it's, it's an absolute, but you're not holding it as an absolute, whereas, um, you are, you come into, this is an absolute at the teal stage. And at, when you're at the construct aware stage, yes, it's an absolute, but you're not identifying with it as an absolute. I don't know how else to say it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, uh, I, I think what is, what I can relate to is that I'm at teal with integrating and transforming. So I'm busy with the maps. At the next stage, I could watch myself be busy with the maps. And, mm-hmm. you know, that feels like a move. Uh, is that what we're talking about? I could literally, the construct I'm seeing, and I get that, that I could see constructs, but the big construct I'm seeing is me. That is one, yes. Um, so definitely, so those are both. So that one is the big construct that is you, your mind and your ego, that those are constructs, that even the idea of the self is an invention, that's yeah. a big realization. And then even your maps are a construct, but now you can see that, oh, if you reconstructed this map differently, the, the, all of reality would be different, and you get a sense of that. Mm-hmm. And I think... It's helpful to still work within a particular context of an experience, uh, not just an abstraction of mm-hmm. the functioning, of the mental functioning, you know. So when I'm coaching, I, I did um, coach somebody at Construct Aware recently. Oh, interesting. And yeah, so one of the things that, because they make distinctions and 
So for what emerged in the conversation were a couple of things. I said, so one practice I suggest is for you to unname something. Hmm. So not just name it, because construct, uh, construct, creating a construct or defining something requires articulating it and making a distinction. But what if you stripped it of distinction? Then, uh, then that is uh, that takes you a step closer to the next stage, which is the unitive, which is dissolving mm-hmm. distinctions. And so that would be a developmental task. So that would be one of the footholds yeah. for the for the construct aware stage. And she found it very very meaningful. Yeah. So I asked her just pick a person or pick pick a situation in your mind, and you know just reflect on it for ten seconds, twenty seconds. And she did that. And I said now. Do the same thing, but without naming it in your mind. So reflect on the person. So let's say you're thinking about a person. You're thinking about Tom. Now think about the person and don't call him Tom. Mm-hmm. So he's not Tom. He doesn't have a name. How do you experience this reality? How do you experience the, the trueness of Tom without him being called Tom? Is there a difference? And she said there's absolutely a qualitative difference. Absolutely right. That's fantastic. And so just practicing unnaming is a great developmental step for the construct aware. Yeah. And the other part of it, which also emerged with this person, which actually is a personal practice of mine, is when you begin to see that yourself is a construct, you get, I feel, what I what I call deep choice. You know, there's really now a deeper choice of who I can be. I don't have to be Bina. Mm-hmm. So now my task is how can I get Bina out of the way? So unnaming getting Bina out of the way, and paradoxically, how can I be more Bina? What, yeah. Who would Bina be if we didn't I got know who Bina she was. out of the way? <laughs> right. Who yeah. would Bina be if I got Bina out of the way? Now, that capacity the construct-aware person has, and that's the paradoxical nature of the work that they're able to take on, and which is liberating. So um, yeah. that's one example. Well, it's a beautiful one, and it puts me in mind of spiritual practice, which is often about unnaming or just seeing something for what it is without any um, conditioned mind to actually allow it to arise. And I remember in my chaplain training at, at Naropa, we would do a process where we would sit with a client who was, in this case, sick or in some distress at a hospital or, or whatever, and do a process called basic awareness, which mm-hmm. was basically having a windshield wiper uh, going in your mind, constantly noticing the sort of words and names and descriptions and all of the stuff that would want to come up. And instead of that, just really pour your attention into that person in that moment, moment by moment, mm-hmm. how the mm-hmm. light was changing on their face, how they talked, what they were saying, their energetic body, moment by moment, as a meditation. And it is, to use a word you used a minute ago, liberating. It, it is, mm-hmm. yeah, just um, liberating. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. And what I find, this is not counter, counter to what you're saying, but as an as a parallel or alternative path, this is the growing up path to enlightenment, for example. So the kind of exercise that you, or experience that you just described, 
if I engage with that in the context of a spiritual teaching, then I am entering that space with ideas I have about spirituality mm-hmm. um, that I feel does something to um, that in, not does something that I I think is, is the quality of that experience. And so, in comparison, for me, understanding the growing up path. And then to come up, come into an experience or an exercise that is similar to that spiritual exercise, but through the path of the developmental stages. Mm-hmm. What might I that be? I find that. I'm sorry. What might that be? Just, just what we just described. So I feel that that includes more parts of me, or it. I feel like I'm not checking things out of the door and entering into a spiritual experience, but I'm actually owning all of my life and then embracing an experience that can that keeps me on the spiritual path. So it's not either or, but I'm just, I'm, and maybe I'm not being very coherent here, but I'm just highlighting a parallel path. Suzanne sometimes calls it the rational path to enlightenment, but mm-hmm. you know that the unitive stage is descriptive of spiritual wisdom. Mm-hmm. And you can get there you can get there without going through any quote-unquote spiritual teaching. Yeah, but it's still a spiritual experience and a spiritual it path. Is. You Absolutely. know, it just is. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, okay. So, all right, then the unitive. Give me a, a blast of the unitive. You say that distinctions dissolve. Yeah, it's like you're able to finally hold everything without needing to map everything and name everything or unname anything. And it's the, in some ways, it's, it's the simplicity of the, you know, uh, the pulsating everything. It's, it's an acceptance of the self to be in constant flux and transformation and really be, uh, not reject any aspect of that flux. I am body and not body. I am saying I am all bodies. I'm all beings. It's an immediate integrative awareness of direct experience, which is why the unnaming is such a powerful step towards the the unitive being. Um, You're scaring me. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm there yet. That sounds a little well, too. too uh, no, I, I, I totally. I think it's well. Go on. Well, I guess even that is something I think is a trap to say, am I there yet or not? So I, I prefer to open that up and, and have you notice the times when you, when you get glimpses of that. And, um, how does that feel in your body? And how can you, you know, awaken that, uh, other times without trying to push for it or anything like that? Yeah. But yeah, so I don't claim to be at that stage. And I do know that I've had a few glimpses uh, which have been breathtaking. Yeah. And I can share one if you like. Oh, please. And it was, uh, you know, it was momentous for me. Of course, at that time, I wasn't interpreting it as having a sense of being in the unit of my mom had just passed away and I had not imagined how devastating that would be. Hmm. I was in India and... She passed away unexpectedly at that time, and I had to fly back to the U.S. because we were teaching a program, Suzanne and I, and I stepped off the plane after the funeral and into a classroom here and mm. had no time 
by myself to digest or anything like that until after the program was done. And so the next day, the next, the first morning of the program was the first time I would have by myself since she passed. And that was seven or eight days after she passed. And one of the participants in the program requested to meet with me in the morning. And I said, I'm not sure how I'm going to be feeling. I'll let you know. I'll text you and let you know if we can meet. And so I woke up in the morning, must have been 6.37. I was supposed to meet him at 11 and just totally woke up into a new life because that was the first time I was really allowing her passing, the whole experience to really touch me. Mm. And I kept thinking, I don't know if I want to meet this person. And I kept thinking, no, I, I should just be with this. I want to be with this. And But I still wasn't sure, so I kept agonizing. But I kept checking into myself. And then an hour, I fell asleep. And then I woke up again. I was exhausted. And I thought, now it's 9 o'clock. Should I meet him or not? And I thought, no, I don't, I don't want to meet. I don't think I want that. But I still didn't get in touch. I thought, let me see how I feel. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept going back and forth in this subliminal kind of state. And then about a few minutes, maybe a half hour before I was supposed to meet him, I just had this sense that whether I met him and I was sitting with him or I was being by myself and grieving, it was all one thing. Mm. Mm. It didn't matter because I was trying to, I was trying to feel into my experience. I was trying to choose what would be the right thing. And, and, and in that moment, none of those distinctions mattered. Yeah. And so and it was just coming into a sense of clarity. Clarity is also too too strong a word. I just acted. I texted him and I said, I'll see you downstairs in half an hour. Uh, we were in a really beautiful environment. There was a labyrinth there and we walked and we sat and talked for an hour. And I felt that every minute that I was with him, I was also with the part of me that wanted to be engaged with my mom's passing. And I didn't feel any pulls or right. cross nothing. You wow. know? And I think I think that was a unitive experience for I me. Do too. And it was just a glimpse. Just a feel. Mm. But it's uh, something I can go back to as a touchstone that that's what it feels like. Yeah. And isn't it wonderful to know that and to see yeah. where it is and you know and to know that you can sort of hold that precious as a as a beacon. As a touchstone. Yeah, and I think knowing it and framing it as a unitive experience, I think supports me in being more open to it, in being able to notice more. So if I didn't, let's assume I didn't know anything about development, I didn't have this framework, I was working, baking, um, I don't know, baking cakes or teaching school children, whatever, and I had that unitive experience and I had no way of framing it, then I think it would come and go. I'm not sure. Again, I don't know if this is me trying to hold on to, again, you know, and capturing learning and um, continuing to evolve myself. But it, mm-hmm. it does seem to me, and that's one of the gifts of this work, is that having this framework to interpret my life experience evolving, I think it is a, a big gift. Yeah. It's a very big gift. Yeah. It's a very big gift. And I think the way people develop when they have this lens and an understanding, I think there's a qualitative difference between that and what I might call natural development where you don't have this frame. There's something 
that there's something that's, that's added yeah. that I think is um, beautiful. Well, you know, one of the ways I think about integral consciousness and, and, and beyond is that we realize that we actually can co-create this, um, this Jeff, in my case, that is in motion. And I can mm-hmm. actually start steering the ship, and I also have to surrender, and, you know, I get better at that. And, you know, you, you mentioned a minute ago about uh, you don't know whether you're just sort of holding on and, and using this. As, th- th- there's part of it that, that is appropriate. I, I go back to, I, I'm looking at your chart, skill-centric. You know, to actually see um, what you did with your friend meeting him and seeing that it was all the same thing is something that I could get better at, actually. Mm. Yeah. You know? I could see that in my own life that when I drop my preferences and, you know, this whole karmic stream of Jeff wanting things the way he wants them, that it doesn't really matter what Jeff wants in a certain profound way. It really just doesn't. That every moment and everything I'm doing is an opportunity for me to be as alive and, and, and as Jeff as I could possibly be. Hallelujah. You know? Yeah, hallelujah. And <laughs> yeah, and when you said not privileging, not preferencing any yeah. one experience over the other, that's the, that's the key, man. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, um, and that's where, you know, we use polarities, polarity wisdom as one of our core vehicles for transformation, for integration, for vertical development. So we use it at every stage of development. We've defined stage-related polarities. So, as you know, polarities, and that, I mean, it'd be great to do another call just on polarities. It's just an absolute masterful way of understanding even mm-hmm. stage development yeah. and stages of development. So, What's the basic so, thesis of polarity that we might just want to know now? We could certainly do another call. Yeah. I mean, how did it work so, with what we've been talking well, about? So early stages of development, we tend to divide the world in either or terms. We think black or white. We hit one value against another, and we feel we have to pick one over the other. As we go through development, and I can get more granular than this, but I'm just mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, just a little the big high picture. Level. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you pass the orange stage and you get into post-conventional, you're coming to the natural understanding that that is not the way reality works. The either or is actually an unsustainable way of seeing the world and you begin to come into a both and understanding. You begin to see, no, it's not this or that. It's both. It's not, you know, is it just work or life? It's work-life balance. It's not just about me developing spiritually or me having good family relationships. It's mm-hmm. both, you know, and 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 you're saying and this then, comes on at, at orange. It comes on post orange. Post orange is just beginning to grapple with the idea of balancing. Before that, they are they are contrasted, and before that, only one is is devoutly held as better than the other. Yeah, this is the way, and that's not the way. Yeah. And then you begin to contrast, and then you begin to try and balance, and then you begin to see, no, it's both this and that. And then you begin to see, well, it's both this and that, and then neither this or that, and (laughs) either or is also okay in some situations. So then you begin to see that until now, what you, when you felt either or thinking is bad and both and thinking is good, 
you then realize that that itself is an example of either or thinking. <laughs> yeah, cool. And then you go to the next stage where you begin to see that, well, it's not even both and. They actually give rise to each other. They are interdependent. They are interconnected. And you can't have one without the other. They come together. They're two sides of the same coin. Right. Like light and, and dark. Then, right. Exactly. You know, you can't have, you don't know what dark is without light. You don't know what light is without dark. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And then when you come to unitive, you begin to privilege non-duality over duality. Mm-hmm. You... You know, your first step is, no, there is, you know, because you're dissolving all boundaries and then you can privilege no boundary over boundary until you realize the ultimate polarity, which is that duality and non-duality itself is a dam. It's the existential paradox. Yeah. And that the naming and the framing itself is an expression of dualism. So this is a one dimension and one way of describing the the waves of development through each stage, but looking at how the mind or how the ego handles and names opposites uh, to polarities, to both and to duality and non-duality. So it's very scalable. It's very practical. Uh, there's a practical toolkit that's available. You're familiar with Barry Johnson's work. So I can work with somebody at Amber stage and work on a polarity without calling it a polarity because I understand the dynamic and mm -hmm. I can work with somebody at the skill-centric stage. I can work with somebody at green and I can work with polarities in more and more sophisticated ways as I go up the stages and I can work, work all the way up and all the way down. Right. So one of the things that Suzanne and I have done, we wrote a paper on this is we identified what are those polarities that are stage related, like a skill-centric stage, is because you're at that stage, because you're at that rung, because of the way you see the world and the view at that rung, you're necessarily going to be in the grip of a polarity. Mm -hmm. Just by function of the stage. Because there are other polarities that are not stage-related. They are style-related, like thinking and feeling, MBTI, right. the Jungian archetype. That's a that's typology-related polarity. And you can have a thinking type, an overly thinking type, or an overly feeling type across any of the stages. So that's right. a non-stage related polarity, but there are stage related polarities. So this gives us another foothold. So one of those, that granular handbook that I was talking about, one of the footholds is what polarities are you struggling with that are related to your stage? Mm-hmm. And then we can work, we can use a polarity map to help them embrace the other. And as they integrate the quote unquote opposite or the interdependent pair, it gives a lift up. It, it gives you developmental energy and then you get to the next stage. Right. No, fantastic. Integrating. Yeah. So it's a very, very conducive and appropriate and powerful vehicle for developmental work. And one of the manifestations of that was in that unitive experience, which is not privileging any one experience over the other, not right. preferencing. No, so <clears throat> I like to say preferences are the root of all evil. Right. It's what you, when you prefer something over the other, right then and there, there is a belief that one is better than the other, and that's something that you can challenge. Yeah. Well, and don't we still notice, uh, we don't prefer, but we notice. And we see 
Well, isn't one of the, maybe the fundamental polarity is form and emptiness, which is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute relative form and emptiness. Yeah. So we want the, the, the big spacious where all boundaries dropped, it's all one thing, you know, hallelujah. And then we also want to see every particular in its particularity yeah. and to watch the dance of form within, you know, this greater space of emptiness and, you know, unity. Yeah, what you just said was exquisite, Jeff. Totally exquisite. Thank you. So that's the polarity we're actually working with at Unitive and in, in just sort of a embrace of it. Yeah. 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 And, and the exciting thing about the polarity lens is that I can work with uh, a polarity with somebody at Amber in terms of just others' voices and your voice. So the Amber stage-related polarity would be they pay more attention to other people's voices. What do you expect of me? Yes. Uh, but there's not enough of my own voice. So how can you find your own voice? Right. And so, so again, As you do that, really, then you're moving into orange. Absolutely. Yeah. And moving into, well, after Amber, you move into the light orange, which is the skill-centric, which is the one rung that is yes. additional in our framework. And that's when you step into your own voice. And then, of course, you can get stuck into your own voice. And then you cycle up again. Yeah. So what's the polarity then at skill-centric and um, self-determining? Oh, there are many. So for the skill-centric, it often shows up quantitative-qualitative. They tend to privilege the quantitative. Um, Mm -hmm. They're looking at numbers, facts, figures, you know. More the exteriors to use the quadrants. Yes, exteriors, interiors, knowing, knowledge, and they tend to privilege knowledge and completely reject ambiguity or uncertainty or not knowing. <laughs> yeah, that's I missed one. that but stage. That's very cool. <laughs> I think I need to go yeah, back and do some more of that. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> tangible, intangible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, technical right. and human. Then the achiever, the, or the self-determining stage, the orange stage, the polarities there? Their efficiency and effectiveness is one. So skill-centric, they focus more on efficiency, and at the orange, you come into effectiveness. It's mm-hmm. not about do, doing the right way, but actually doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. So and looking at the result. Some of the stage-related yeah, stage are, uh, orange is all about the future, five years from now, making it happen, predicting and so being in the here and the now is important. And that's the other pole. And that will help them get into green, which is all about the here and the now. Yeah. Doing and being, that's a big one. So the achiever is all about do, do, do. And then the green comes into being. Yes. Rational and intuitive. The green comes into intuitive. Controlling, uh, controlling for outcomes and then letting go of outcomes, or you can say even planning and emergence. Mm-hmm. The green is all about emergence. You don't plan, you don't make things happen. You just wait to see as things unfold. Right. So when, when I'm working with these polarities at the orange level, any of these three or four polarities, if they work with them consistently and have little experiments and begin to feel in their bodies what it's feels like to move into embracing that other pole, they're already stepping into green. Yeah. So that to me is so, it's like 
Yeah. Beauty, you know, it's simple and simple and beautiful. It, it totally it is. Me, it just makes it. It's not like a lot of abstraction and a lot of trying to make something happen. It's just so, so close to life and experience. Mm-hmm. So keep going. So then the green to teal move. Some of the polarities that we might be working with there. So the green is again the relative and the absolute, right?、Mm-hmm. We already talked about that. And then, in some ways, some of the orange gets reclaimed at the teal stage,、mm-hmm. which is rejected at the green stage. So both ends is、uh, would be one pole at the green stage, and then both end and either or would be the other pole. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. I'm just we had well, one of the things I often think of at Teal is that we begin to see that there, yes, everything's relative, and yeah, we want to really bash and, and, and get away from、um, all of the absolutes that have tortured humanity up to that point, and we do that at Green. But at Teal, we start to see that there are natural patterns, there are natural hierarchies that. Seedlings grow into saplings, grow into oaks, you know, and that that not the other way around, and that's sort of the what are the, the ways I see the move into teal. Does that make sense? Yeah, and integrating perspectives is an important thing because the the green is also pluralistic, right? So、yes. you are basically. Blowing up into multiple perspectives, and then integrating multiple perspectives, and arriving at an integrated perspective—that is teal.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the on the flip side, teal because they can see so much and know so much and can track so much. For them, owning the mystery is the other pole that will help them step into construct aware. Right. So、and、not knowing, always not trying knowing, to make sense. Right. Yeah. Right. And then for construct aware, it is you know deconstructing and integrating. That would be one polarity. Complexity and simplicity would be a big one.、Mm-hmm. So they 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 privilege complexity. Construct aware privileges complexity. So if they're able to embrace simplicity beyond complexity, that will help them step into the next, which is the unitive.、Mm-hmm. And in unitive, seeing emptiness and form. Yeah, both transcendence and ego. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and integrating <laughs> all kinds of contrasts and dualisms, and basically、yeah. embracing all concepts、um, ambivalences. Yeah, and, and being、um, more being more bina than ever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, just just imagine, Jeff. What is the most Jeff you can be? I feel it's like a pulsating、uh, mystery. Yeah. You know the most Bina that she can be, the most Jeff that he can be, and and that is,、um, it's like a little、uh, shining light. Yeah, and it's an opportunity to look at ourselves in in that way, and to look at me, to look at you, and see you being more Bina than ever, and to see that in everybody. It's a real gift when you actually do that for somebody. They know it when you're doing it. They don't know they know、okay. it, <laughs> but. Well, you know, I'm bowing、it's... to you right now. <laughs> oh, well, right back at you, Bina. This has、uh, just been a, a personally just a lovely journey this last hour with you. Thank you. All right. 
Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you again, Bina Sharma. You can find out more about Bina and the Center for Leadership Maturity at verticaldevelopment.com. I've linked to it in the podcast write-up, verticaldevelopment.com. And of course, you can find more of my stuff at the same old place, dailyevolver.com. And also, I've taken to doing Facebook Live videos. So you can go to the Daily Evolver page on Facebook and check those out as well. Okay, thanks folks.